brought to you by Penguin. All of the the things um, that perhaps I was called as a kid, particularly nerd, freak, or weirdo, I consider badges of pride. And language is always something that can be reinvented and uh, reclaimed. That's part of every, you know, liberation movement is to take language and say, no, not that, this. Hello and welcome to the award-winning Penguin Podcast with me, Nihal Arthanaika. Now, this is the place where authors are invited to discuss the inspiration behind their works, their writing processes, and what drives them in their creative endeavours. Each episode, our guest selects, or guests today, select a handful of objects that have had an impact on their writing, and then we find out why. Now, this week... It's two for the price of one as we're joined by a genuine literary power couple. There you go. Since meeting at Cambridge University in the late 90s, she has solidified her position as one of the world's foremost authors with her books White Teeth on Beauty and Swing Time, garnering universal praise and critical acclaim, while he forged a path as a prominent novelist and poet with collections including To a Fault, which won the prestigious Rooney Prize for Irish Literature in 2005. And now they've joined forces for their latest project, a heartwarming and beautifully written picture book all about Maud. And here's a sentence I never thought I'd hear myself saying, a guinea pig in a judo suit. Published earlier this month, Weirdo is brought to life by the magnificently textured illustrations of Magenta Fox as we follow Maud through confusing situations and brave encounters en route to embracing her individuality. So it's a great pleasure to welcome back to the Penguin podcast, Sadie Smith, and to say hello for the first time to Nick Laird. Nick and Sadie, hello. Hi. Hi. It's great to have you both here. Thanks for having us. If you think back to your own school days, was it ever pointed out to you by others that you were a bit of an outlier? Oh, you mean like weird? Yeah. Yeah. All right, let's do that then. But yeah, outlier outlier is, I just love the thought of an outlier because it seems like a nicer thing to say, isn't it? I don't think you need to go back to our school days. I mean, I was calling Zidi a weirdo yesterday. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's, it's hung around. Um, yes, I, I always felt um, strange. But, you know, as you get older, you realise that this is a general feeling. It's, um, there is no um, norm core. Everybody feels uh, like an outliner, outlier, more or less. But, yeah, I, I felt it pretty acutely when I was a kid. Was that because... Not you only feeling it, but others pointed it out to you. Um, I felt it because I, I, the main thing I liked to do was nothing, <laughs> was was read and not do anything else. So that, that'll put you out there. And I suppose I, I look strange in various ways. I had the usual pretty hardcore teeth situation, braces, hair was often out of control, very short-sighted, all the things that children like to point out about other children. I had all those things. Nick? Yeah, I, I'm from a very small town in County Tyrone, um, uh, so I didn't. No one was really calling me a weirdo. I never. I was tall, skinny, and kind of good at school, but I didn't know. Zidi was more extreme. Whenever I met her, when she was eighteen, and she, she's you know unique. I was. <laughs> I when we met, I was dressed in uh, like Victorian clothes. That like was something steampunk. I used to do, for example. It was steampunk before steampunk was yeah, a thing. Yeah, it wasn't a right. thing then. Yeah, those kind of things, you know, habits, uh, tastes. But I think it's pretty 
weird to be a someone who wants to be a poet in a small, sporty town. Yeah, but I just mean I wasn't getting followed down the street by people calling me weird. No, that was that was my particular pleasure. <laughs> oh, <sorry. laughs> I wasn't suggesting you were either. I just meant like yeah. So in the early nineties, yes, when you begin university, and I don't know, everyone's obsessed with Destiny's Child or whatever. You are dressing up like a character from a Sherlock Holmes. No, it's hard to put because I was also obsessed with Destiny's Child. You, so it's not it's not that I didn't like everything. It's just that I also liked. The 19th century. <laughs> I like both of those things. <laughs> and how difficult was it to source authentic clothes from the era in the um, early 90s? Well, there was, Camden Market. there was a lot. There's Camden Market. There were lots of vintage shops. I just, I was always trying out a lot of different um, looks, none of them particularly successful. The tartan went on a lot. I wore a lot of tartan. And then there was a waistcoat. A waistcoat. I wore a waistcoat for a while. Yeah. So did you find a tribe, as it were, at Cambridge then? Um, you also I, had lots of friends yeah, at school. Yeah, you know, other people who were also perhaps a bit strange. But, you know, writing anyway is a job for one person alone. So it's only in normcore world that being alone is a shame. I enjoy being alone most of the time, so it works out fine. So Okay, so why now? Why come together now to do this beautiful book? Um, well, we've written together before. We've, we've tried to write film scripts and TV scripts and stuff like that. But really, honestly, the inspiration for this book was just Magenta's drawings. We, they're just so beautiful and they reminded me of books I'd love as a child. And I, and I guess with our kids, just showing them the pictures, they were so engaged by them and so excited by them. And so for me anyway, it was just a way of showcasing this um you know, extraordinary young talent. It's so exciting when someone's that young and that talented. Do you think our attitude towards being different has changed, Nick? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, I think there's a, a much more um, tolerance for people are meant to be different, but I suppose in trying to be different, they all become the same. <laughs> yeah, there is that um, problem. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's a perennial problem, I suppose, for the age of kids that the book is geared towards, that fear of standing out in some way. I suppose the book is sort of about that, but it's always annoying, I think, to try and uh, crowbar morals into kids' stories. So the book is sort of about a guinea pig who does judo, you know, and it is called Weirdo. The cat in it, Dora, she's a a bit of a pill. She calls her um, Weirdo, and that's where it starts from, but... We kind of were interested in the drawings and then it was, so he said to me, look, I find this really great um, illustrator. If we ever do a kid's book, we should contact her. And I said, well, I have, I have a few kids' stories in a file on my computer that I was working on. So then we just um, sort of knocked them back and forward. And we are working on one about a rabbit who was a t- terribly annoying rabbit called Alex. And then... Um, uh, Zadie showed me a picture of magentas of, of a guinea pig in a judo costume tied to some balloons. And then I thought, we were, oh, oh, how did this come about? How did the, how did the guinea pig get tied to some balloons? And then I, I went off and did the first draft of Weirdo. Um, yeah. And then it just went back and forth. <clears> I took his draft and changed little bits. And that's how we write together usually, just, um, moving a piece of writing from one desk to another and back again. So in this respect, then, from what you've just said, is this the easiest thing you've ever done? Uh, No. (laughs) I mean, working together is is never easy because you're so used to 
working alone, you know, for being your yeah. own judge and jury. So it's really hard to have suddenly have another person saying, well, maybe this or maybe that. I mean, in editing, of course, but in the actual moment of generating an idea, it's usually your mind in discussion with your mind. So it's when there's two minds, it's a completely different exercise. We're quite good at not falling out anymore over it, but yes, we anymore. used to have arguments about editing each other's work and stuff. And no, it's better. You, you get to realise how to play to each other's strengths. Like Nick is really good at plot and story. I'm better at people speaking. So that was kind of how we separated our duties here, like me trying to get the voices of the animals and Nick trying to think of what happens to the animals. Um, but mostly, you know, the sense in which it was easy is that it's no chore when you look at these drawings. They're so generative. <laughs> they're stories in themselves. Yeah. So She's a very gentle kind. I don't know if that's the right word, a very gentle kind of illustrator. She reminded us of Raymond Briggs and books that we really liked when we were kids. And we'd been living in America for 10 years, and American kids' books are maybe not as illustrated as well as some of the ones that we loved when we were kids. So I think that was what attracted us to her. Well, you've already mentioned your first object, and this is, even though Nick mentioned it, Sadie, this is your first object, and that is that drawing of a guinea pig tied to a balloon. Yeah, I um, I love the specificity of it. When we're talking about kind of general morals for children's books, I, I noticed I do it myself. Like I was talking to my son today about Alice in Wonderland that he was reading, and I started wanging on about infinity <laughs> because of the the race with the dodo you know that never ends and I was saying oh and he was a mathematician and so he was interested in infinity and I could see my son was thinking yeah but it's a dodo who runs in a set that was the fun part and now you've just made it weird and also boring <laughs> so I, I right. think for kids the specific image is the thing obviously as adults we can we interpret it the way we interpret it and we have these elaborate stories about them sometimes consciously like Dodgson like Lewis Carroll. But for a child, it's about that specific animal doing that specific thing. And that's what I loved about that guinea pig and the balloons. It suggests story and it's so interesting in itself. There's no reason to draw such a thing. It's completely irrational. And I, that's what I loved about it, that sense of um, play that children have, that adults sometimes fail to have. But I guess by calling it weirdo, that is immediately a message to the adult who's potentially reading it to the child, isn't it? Otherwise you would have called it Maud. Uh, yes, that's true. I, You know, I, I'm always interested personally in uh, language and terminology and all of the, the things um, that perhaps I was called as a kid, particularly nerd, freak or weirdo, I consider badges of pride. And language is always something that can be reinvented and uh, reclaimed. That's part of every, you know, liberation movement is to take language and say, no, not that, this. And there was also a, an element of, I, I knew that the word weirdo sort of, the pictures are so sweet in some way that it almost needed a kind of little twist on it. Um, something about the word weirdo juxtaposed with this very cute guinea pig um, was interesting to me. Interesting you just said about changing words around, Sadie, that... Um... Those words that you were called when you were a kid, did they have any lasting kind of damaging effect on you? Uh, you know, I I, I think uh, it's a particular kind of accusation, right? The accusation of being um, different in a, in a, or having different concerns or different interests. There are many responses to it and certainly one of them can be damage and sadness. And I said, I remember being sad, but I remember more than anything, a kind of defensive 
pride. And also, you know, when people find their tribe, like the tribe of readers or the tribe of poets, you find what a place of joy it is, you know. And maybe one thing adults often tell you, or wise adults when you're young is, you know, you'll be in different spaces soon where these things you're interested in will have a welcome home. There will be a place where reading is a delight and there'll be a place where writing a poem is, you know, a heaven. So books that remind you of that, that remind you that the the place of childhood is not permanent is good, I think, for any child. My 11-year-old daughter struggles with this idea of being different and a bit weird. And I always tell her that all of the most interesting people I've ever interviewed or had conversations with started off life being called weird or, right. or different. Do you remember that song, uh, classic 90s song, sometimes our kids listen to it, Creep, the Radiohead song? Yeah, of course. I, re- I remember hearing that and feeling such um, joy <laughs> and its specific naming and freedom. There's freedom sometimes in, in saying this, these words won't hurt me. Do you play them the radio edit or with the full F word uh, dropping? The uh, no, they, the, you know, they found, uh, you know, versions of 12 year old girls playing on ukulele. But that's the version <laughs> they like. They don't want to hear any of our original music. They're <laughs> not interested. I'm sure, I'm sure Tom York will be over the moon. Yeah. But that's, uh, that's the version. Yeah, that's most of his music is now played by 12 year olds on ukuleles. <laughs> Much better as far as our kids are concerned. Um, Nick, let's go on to your subject and this is of a ornithological uh, feeding variety um so i chose a peanut bird feeder i actually have like six peanut bird feeders in the garden we we live just off um uh wilsdon lane so it's it's pretty um urban area but uh, our terraced house is like a long thin garden that runs up to the railway track so it's quite a lot of wildlife around weirdly there's Foxes and all different kinds of birds, and I hang the. I'm having a kind of ongoing war with the rats from the railway line, but they get up into the peanut feeder, so I'm tying it in various weird places with clothesline. And I didn't know about this war. Yeah, I don't know. It's good walking, to hear about it on this. I was podcast. coming back from my I have an office, <laughs> have an office at the end of the garden, and I was coming back from it. And I thought. It's weird, the bird feeder is swinging. And I looked up and there's two massive rats hanging from the peanut oh. bird feeder. Um, so anyway, the birds come every day and uh, there's like, some of them turn up, one of them is a little blue tit who's got, still got some of the fuzzy down on top of his head that never molted off and he's hilarious. He looks like a little tiny punk bird. And so I don't know, I was thinking <laughs> because of weirdo and because of giving these animals sort of internal or interior mm. lives, I was thinking about the peanut, the peanut bird feeder that brings all these uh, different animals. It's kind of a reminder that, you know, humans aren't the centre of the world. Do you um, have to write in silence, both of you? I just listen to... you got white uh, noise. I, well, it's actually brown noise. I'm, you know, I prefer brown noise. And I listen to that uh, day and night. At one point when the kids were small, I realised you listen to it all day while you work. You listen to it so that they'll go to sleep. Like my whole life is yeah, just. We play because we've been in New York for ten years, and it's so noisy in our apartment in in NYU's building yeah. down in Greenwich Village. We just play it all the time. So I live in this denuded soundscape of yeah, day and night. It's lovely. Um, I just can't. I I I don't like. It sounds so miserable, but to be honest, when I'm writing, I don't. I don't want a view, and I don't want to hear anything. I want to ideally just face a wall. And it to be quiet. <laughs> yeah. Why? Because I think because because I need to focus on the when I'm writing, it's the page is all that exists. I can't really deal with anything else. I just have to 
be only focused on that. But the good thing about that with laptops or whatever is that you, I can kind of create that anywhere now. As long as I have the sound in my ears, I can do it on the bus. I can do it anywhere in a park, anywhere. Yeah. I just, I just need to be focused on the Word 97 program that I still write on. <laughs> Keeping it real. Nick, <laughs> similarly for you then. Yeah, no, I, I listen to brown noise too. Um, actually, also purple noise. These are real things. Green noise What's sometimes. Noise? It's like slightly less harsh. The white noise is the harshest. There's a whole gradation of different coloured noises we've discovered. Are you making this up? No, no I know the brown noise is more mellow, like but I didn't know there was some true. further <laughs> mellowness available <laughs> in purple noise. It's true. You have to investigate. Um, but I, I do also listen to a flick between radio, uh, BBC Radio 6 and BBC Radio 3. Like a wild man. Like a wild man. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad to see there's a kind of pharaoh and ball version of noise that I'd not come yeah. across. Yeah, posh yeah. noise, posh nothing. Posh noise. <laughs> First they turf out the rats, <laughs> then they get their own noise colours in. Their own posh noise. Yeah, so that's what's happening. Uh, the rats, I feel bad about the rats. Sorry, so I brought the rats here now. by trying to late. compost. It turns out you can't really compost in, in a London because the rats just descend on your composter and rip it apart. I was putting food out into a composter and it brought all the rats from Bronsbury Station to the house. <laughs> I'm just mentioning it. And then Focus. once I took that food away, they went crazy and that's when they started doing the bird feeder. So really, it's your fault, yeah. essentially. Oh, sorry, guys. I feel like I brought things down. The <laughs> gap between a guinea pig and a rat is not that far, so yeah. could you try and... Uh, yeah. I, I don't like the rats. That's very true. Um, yeah. How difficult is it to write so few words? <laughs> that is really hard. I really admire children's fiction exactly for that. To convey whole words in such a small space, it's like the ideal of novel writing, something I personally never achieve. And one of the main pieces of editing on this book was every time I wrote a draft, it came back eight times longer than when Nick had given it to me, and then he'd have to take everything, take off. it all out again, just kept on going. Because I, I just expand uh, instinctively. So it really is a skill, that kind of um, compression, and allowing the compression of the words, believing in images. Uh, that's my problem, I guess, is that I'm not used to images. And images do so much work that your job is to kind of facilitate them and be beside them, but not to say what has already been said visually. And that's a, that's an art form. It's, it's not easy, that part. No, I can imagine. Does, does writing poetry help in that respect, Nick? Yeah, I, I like taking words out of things. There's a story about Raymond Chandler. He said he was never happier than when he, he was taking words out of his stories. There's something in that for me. It's interesting how little um, you need to leave to, to keep it intact. Yeah. You know that from fiction. I mean, I know that. I, I love to take stuff out, but this is a whole other level of compression. It's much more suited to a poet, probably, structurally. Yes. That's interesting that you love to take things out. Because you spend so much time putting it in. I know, yeah, but you but know it's getting better. Yeah, it gets better. It yeah. only ever gets better, taking that stuff out. Baudelaire quote I always tell my students, the words are like hair, they shine with combing. Yeah. Just go through it again and again. And also the language, uh, English, is just incredibly flexible and you always need less words. It, it's a fantastic machine. It's already there for you and you just have to operate it a bit more skillfully. So... I don't know any writer who doesn't get joy out of removing adverbs or useless words generally. That's my favourite part. But the, the main block to it is is just 
delusion. It's thinking that it's good when it isn't. And no one is above delusion, unfortunately. <laughs> I often speak to artists and music artists and music artists have A&R people who sometimes tell them oh, to yeah. stop making yeah. the record, right? You've yeah. done enough. Is that something that writers also have an issue with that if just keep going and going and going until someone say, someone perhaps sometimes has to say to them, look, this is good. I th- yeah, I think in, in poetry you can definitely overwork a poem and miss the sweet spot and then have to go back. I think in fiction it's less common. Right? People should work more at their fiction. should <laughs> work more, but it is true. Like sometimes when I'm reading my students' work, and it's exactly the same for my own work, in fact, when I notice it in theirs, I go back to mine and think, oh, it's the same problem. They're the first say 10, 20 pages or something, tend to be in the way a poem can be overworked, obsessively overworked. And sentences start to have this kind of stilted feeling. They're beautiful or whatever, but they're completely unnatural. They're like the kind of jewellery you see in a hotel lobby. Like, it's nice, but you're not going to wear it. So I I think you have to... Sometimes there are virtues like rawness, like naturalness, like first thoughts. You have to know when something is good the first time. And and sometimes ugliness is a virtue in itself. So all of these things come into play, depending on what the book is and what you're trying to get across. But overwriting sentences is always possible and it's always a product of anxiety. I think that's why it usually is happens at the beginning because you're just not sure what you're writing. And so a way yeah. of dealing with that is just writing these four pages a thousand times. What are you striving for when you sit down to write Oh, man. Um. <laughs> perfection. <laughs> but isn't everyone striving is that for what that? You're striving for perfection? Yeah, the, the perfect novel for me, the one that I would like. That's the yeah. best way. Yeah, you want to produce the art, the piece of artwork that you wish was in the world already. You want to read the book. You want to write the book you want to read. Yeah, maybe. or just the best version of your little pile of whatever it is, gifts or they're very small. Every writer is a very tiny little thing in their hand, some little ability in one direction or other. And most novels you write will will use some of it and it'll be okay or whatever. But every every now and then, I feel it when I'm reading other people's writing more than when I'm doing my own. You read a book and you think, this is the perfect shape, the perfect source of this person's consciousness, this person's way of being in the world. They found the perfect vehicle for their way of experiencing the world. Hallelujah. And those books are a joy to read but they don't come along very often. Do you know that you're very good at it? Uh, no, writing's not like that. You know, if you play the, an instrument, a pia- the piano, for example, you get to a certain level of competency and you can be sure whenever you sit down that you'll be play to a certain level. I don't think writing's like that. I think every time you sit down, it's always possible to write the most dreadful right. book. That is, it is constantly possible. No matter how many years are behind you, no matter how much you've read, no matter how much you've studied, it's a completely different practice in that sense. It's like playing a new instrument each time, I suppose, is the idea. Yeah, I think we're talking about the making of art, said Poshley, and that that is a high-risk activity every single time. Otherwise, great writers wouldn't write terrible books, and they do all the time. We all do. I don't think either of us would say that we'd know we're good at it, but I think that we're at the stage now where we 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 know what we do when we teach it. So we know how to maybe talk to students about it, and we've read a, a lot. Bit more. 
books and poems and we can think about it. We spent, you know, 40 years thinking about it. Yeah, but there's a there's a difference, isn't there, between teaching something and practising something. Otherwise, every right. music teacher in the world yeah. would be and selling there's also a horrible, records. Not, I don't think it's true of poetry. I'm speaking only of novelists, but there is a kind of uh, terrible math that just as you get to middle age and, and perhaps have quite a high level <laughs> of practical competency, maybe even all your gifts in a line, is exactly the moment where you have nothing interesting to say. <laughs> So, so that, I don't think that, that's true. It can ha- no, they can be great moments, like there are wonderful just, flowerings in their got- 40s. But I think that's an interesting tightrope that it's like a kind of cruel joke that competency comes at the moment of maximum irrelevancy. So <laughs> the, working that out is, is really interesting. Nick, I would love to give you the space to take yeah, issue. I think that's what take uh, issue. Sadie has just said. Nonsense. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, nonsense. <laughs> no, not, not that you've like become... I don't think it's true that artists necessarily become irrelevant in their 40s and have nothing to say because it's that point, it's sort of... It's getting really interesting. You've got your children screaming at you all day and your parents getting old. Yeah, you got I, it from I both like, ends. Yeah, you got it from both ends. <laughs> no, I, I should... I, I like that. I should modify it a bit. You're right. The, the midlife. The, the books of midlife do tend to be really engaging that is true the- maybe every decade has its own like problems right you know at 20 you think you are god's gift and you make all kinds of embarrassing mistakes then that that feel painful later so it maybe every decade has its, has its uh, anxieties and troubles but a novel anyway is never a sure shot it, it's always possible that a bad book is coming at you has already happened and you are unaware of it etc etc Let's go on to your next object. Uh, we've gone from a guinea pig tied to a balloon to a peanut bird stroke rat feeder and now a tower block. Any particular tower oh, block? Oh, yeah, Not... that was mine. Yes. I was thinking about uh, two different kinds of ones. The one I was born in, which we lived next door to, and the one we lived in in New York when we were there, which is like student and grad and professor accommodation. And just the nature of vertical living. There is a great novel about all of that. Is it George Perec? Oh, there is Ballard, of course. Yeah, yeah. J.G. Ballard wrote it too. Ballard's view is, is pretty dystopian. But right. um, I love the idea of the block. I know they are kind of maligned and sometimes thought of as, you know, the worst places or the saddest places. But to me, the idea of living with a lot of people on a corridor in a tower has uh, so many interesting elements. And there's a book I read a long time ago called The People of Providence, I think it's called, by Tony Parker. Yeah, who's a, a kind place of called Providence. Place called Providence, thank you, Nick, who's like a sociologist, ethnologist almost, who went to interview all the people in a, a tower in South London in the late 70s. And it's not that he presents a utopian view, but from a writer's point of view, the idea of all these lives, you know, all these completely various, interesting, distinct lives lived absolutely next to each other is fascinating and has all these opportunities of connection and conversation. And though their representation of the culture is often, you know, toxic one way or another, there are, mm, are examples true. like that, like that book, like Escape the Block. I love that film. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I hope, I, I hope, so like good. our weirdo, that remembers also that within these supposedly sad structures, when they're built well, which that 
book, uh, Place of Providence, is very concerned with the actual architecture of tower blocks and how they can be made humane and decent and enjoyable for those who live in them. When they're made well, um, it can be a, a place, a different way of living, you know, a different kind of conversation between families and between children, between the adults who care for them. So that was kind of inspiring to us, the idea that the character in our book, Maud, could float up this block into a window and meet somebody quite different from her who she might yet have a connection with. Yeah. Tony Parker is, is worth looking at. He does let, he lets people just talk. He's a, he just records what people say in books. He did one on Northern Ireland called May the Lord and His Mercy Be Kind to Belfast. Yeah, also beautiful. But where we live, where we live in New York looks onto three big tower blocks and that aspect, it's like changing channel. You look down between each floor and people yeah. are in the same shape rooms doing very different things. Um, we used to love. Uh, yeah, it's probably illegal staring at people. <laughs> probably, people. but also only, only with is... a telescope, I would say. Right, yeah. we didn't have a telescope. We didn't have, right, well, no. I, um, I think you're fine. Yeah, the NYU buildings <laughs> originally, I mean, they the way they were built, one tower had to be uh, retained for uh, social housing. social housing, so rent controlled, and many of the blocks, uh, the apartments within our building were remaining from that time, so. That was interesting too, you know, a block that deliberately and consciously mixes classes and yeah. kinds of people. I'm sure Emily Brookstein, even though she's in an English block in our story, has little elements of kind of New York ladies you would sometimes meet in our building and the building across the road, who are the life of the city, you know, and if rent control doesn't exist and if space isn't made for them, they disappear because you can't afford to live in the village yeah. or otherwise. So Emily Brookstein is, in my mind, a little tribute to that kind of citizen who is thought of by the city and a space is created for her and in that space she enlivens the city as a whole. The final object you've brought today is uh, Nick of the canine variety. Our dog, Maud. Uh, Maud. Yeah. Original Maud. She's not actually in the room, she normally is. You would hear her and the podcast would be ruined. So she's a, a a pug that we've had for fifteen years, and she she's oh. um, she's not in a great state. She's blind and deaf at the minute, and her back legs have gone. She fell off the bed the other night. Oh, that was um, anyway, yeah. So she is a sort of we've been doing we've been sort of living our lives through Maud for fifteen years, doing the voices, giving her a, a huge internal life, some prejudices, that kind of thing. So, very elaborate, very uh, elaborate construction of an animal. So. I suppose that was what I was thinking. It related to weirdo. We we haven't written children books before, so come to it anxious because it's a very elaborate field with lots of geniuses in it, really. But the one qualification I felt we had is that we've been voicing a pug for fifteen years. It was a massive story, like it's like a it's longer than The Sopranos. It's the a life saga. of Maud. Yeah. It's a saga. <laughs> And uh, so that was it, like voicing an animal. And I, I know this is done in in homes all over this country and every country. Right. Every There's an amazing amount of fiction writing cats gets done through cats and, and dogs. The street personalities. And One of my favourite things when, when readings used to be a thing and used to meet readers is to ask people about their pets and ask them what their personality was. And people don't pause. They're like, yeah. they immediately know and tell you these elaborate stories of right. their political inclinations, these dogs and Incredibly what they like generous. and what they watch on TV and their best friends. And so people have an amazing gift for this kind of fiction. And I, I love that. I don't think it is entirely fiction though. 
Like we fictionalise Maud's internal life, but Maud does. You understand have it's very possible Maud doesn't even know her name. <laughs> That's how fictional Not anymore, the projection yeah. of personalities onto dogs is. Yeah. Yeah. Now look, before we ask our final question of Nick and Sadie, don't forget to follow the Penguin podcast. Comment, rate, and most of all, share. You can also find us on your Alexa-enabled device. So at this stage of the podcast, we like to offer our listeners a personal book recommendation from our guests. Well, I mean, Sadie, you've already said what you're currently reading, haven't you? Nick, what are you currently reading? And to Sadie, what's next on your list of books to read? Um, I'm reading, I I gave a recommendation in The Observer for this book. I'll do it again. It's Josh Cohen's How to Live, Mm. What to Do. Yeah. Which is um, a kind of reading of famous novels through a psychoanalytic lens. So we look at sort of GNA's childhood. I'm not making it sound as interesting as it is, though. You've just read it before me. Why don't you talk about that? Um, okay. Nick, okay. Can, I, I, can you I'm just have the courage of your convictions, <laughs> yeah. Nick? I mean, no. I'll tell you why. It's because I'll tell you why. It's because Eddie's looking at me like you need to let not talk about this. <laughs> let me explain it. That's not true. Um, it is a fantastic book, and for people who read and who are alive, because it kind of covers every yeah. stage: childhood, middle age, it's old quite age. Big. Um, Did you just say for people who read and are alive? And are alive, yeah. This yeah. is a good I mean, book. It's about that's being some alive. Criteria. I know it's, it's very broad, criteria. but it's not for the people who read and are dead. No, but it's really <laughs> okay. It's it's really about what it's like to be alive and what it's like to be a reader while you go through all these stages of life. Yeah. So I just it was a book made for us maybe, but I I really it is very good. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, what am I reading? Well, I'm about to read. A long short story. I'm going to read it again by Toni Morrison because I'm writing an introduction for it, and it's her only short story, which is to me an amazing fact. It's something so unusual in that yeah. to write all those novels and only write one short story. And Just couldn't do uh, it. luckily, no, luckily it's a masterpiece, <laughs> so that's really annoying. How can it be perfect and only one of them? But it's about two little girls who are raised in care, and the kind of sublime part of it is one of them is black and one is white but throughout the story you never know which is which and it's very hard to explain how that is achieved but it is achieved and it's really an extraordinary piece of writing so i've read i've really read it but i'm about to read it again and to spend like a few months thinking about it to write this write this introduction do you both often read things again oh yeah i mean that's you've read uh, Nick, that's all a poet does, as far as I can tell. Um, yeah, I read <laughs> uh, I read a lot of po- poetry again. I, I don't read fiction twice, really. One of the definitions of poetry is that you can't get it in one reading. I mean, you have to go back and spend right. time. Uh, the thing that Nabokov said, that all real reading is rereading. Yeah. And I do feel that. I mean, I, I we teach, so it's inevitable that you're going to read certain books over and over. There's some books I've read every year for almost 20 years because I've been teaching them every semester. But to me, every time you reread, you see something new. And particularly in the presence of students, you realise a book passed through somebebody else's consciousness is a different book. Yeah. So I'm constantly but seeing different angles on the same It depends what you're text. reading for. Like if you're reading for information, then of course don't reread it. But if you're reading for beauty and style and art and patterning and, you know, different things, sonic effects, then, yeah, you're going to want to reread it. And, and they change. Like books change over time as you grow older. So think about Morrison again. I'm teaching the Bluest Eye at the moment with a student. I hadn't read it since I was 
young, you know, 18, 19. It seems to me a different book now. And so that kind of process is really generative and enjoyable for me. But also you're up against the, the clock of all the all the books you'll never read. Yeah. I feel that very it's strongly. Toni Morrison, she was writing those books in her 40s. Yes, she is a good example. And also an amazing example of a re-reader. She's yeah. obsessed with reading Twain, Faulkner, over and over and over again, and writing essays on them, trying to get to the essence of something in America that she was concerned with. Yeah. We have run out of time. But All right, thank mate. you. So I feel like I've learned so much about you. <laughs> that's worrying. Yeah, I never want I hope, any podcast really to say that to me afterwards is. at the end of the podcast. 